Welcome to Private Equity Perspectives, a podcast by BDO USA's private equity practice. Each episode, BDO connects with leaders in the private equity space to discuss the latest trends driving deal activity, fund strategies, and portfolio company optimization. Hi, I'd like to welcome our listeners to another episode of BDO's Private Equity Perspectives podcast. My name is Todd Kinney, and I'm the National Relationship Director for BDO's Private Equity Practice, and I'm based in New York. I'm very excited to have two guests with me today, two uh, firms that are great friends of BDO. Uh, First, Matt Bernstein joins us from Raymond James. Uh, Matt is a VP within their investment banking group, specifically focusing on recapitalization and restructuring and also private capital solutions. Matt advises clients on in and out of court restructuring transactions, complex corporate carve-outs, and other special situation transactions and financing. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks, Todd. True pleasure to be here. Awesome. Second, I'm delighted to welcome to the program Adrian Whipple, who is VP of Operations at TZP Group here in New York. Adrian has worked on numerous private equity fund audits and portfolio company valuations, as well as delivered consulting services to PE clients, including transaction services, and working closely with integration and separation teams. Adrian, great to have you here today. Glad to be here, Todd. Thank you. Awesome. Well, let's let's jump into it. And I guess, Matt, I'll throw the uh, this one out to you. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Raymond James and, and your role there? Sure. Yeah. Prior to Raymond James, I worked at FCI Consulting doing restructuring and corporate finance consulting for a little over five years after graduating from Cornell University. I've been at Raymond James for a little over four and a half years now. And as you pointed out, currently a vice president in investment banking, working with the two products that you mentioned earlier. So Raymond James itself is a global full service financial institution with $13 billion of market cap dedicated to the middle market providing investment banking, equity capital market, retail brokerage, asset management, and many other services to its clients. So at Raymond James, my group is a product group within the larger investment bank. We advise on M&A, both in and out of bankruptcy, corporate carve-out or special situation transactions, and financing alternatives up and down the capital structure. And we've successfully advised clients on transactions involving more than $100 billion of liabilities. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Adrian, as the uh, VP of Ops at TZP Group, I was hoping you could tell our listeners uh, a little bit about TZP and your role there. Sure. Um, TZP is a private equity investor in the lower middle market focused on North America, Um, currently uh, investing out of our third fund and capital raising uh, for our second growth fund. Uh, Focus is on primarily first-time sponsor capital, uh, entrepreneur-led businesses with a heavy management role uh, and an equity role, uh, with a heavy management equity role. Um, and I mentioned that because it's a very important part of our thesis to have the founders and entrepreneurs of the business stay on and have some skin in the game. Uh, we focus on uh, some specific verticals, including outsourced business services and IT, uh, real estate-related or real estate-adjacent investments. Uh, we look at media and technology, as well as consumer services and products. Um, I focus on value creation. Um, During the due diligence phase, we'll look for opportunities where we think we can add value beyond bringing capital to the table and then structure uh, a plan to execute uh, on those those initiatives. 
Uh, I focus on the first 100-day plans and then as needed throughout the life cycle of the investment. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's jump into our our first topic. And Matt, uh, I'll throw this one to you. So we're winding down the year and taking a look ahead at what 2019 has in store. Uh, Since your work focuses on recapitalization and restructuring, uh, could you tell us about the trends you're seeing right now in the market in terms of restructuring and distressed M&A engagements? And uh, I, I guess, secondly, if you expect levels of activity to be the same in 2019. Sure, of course. So first off, we're seeing an uptick generally in overall Chapter 11 filings. And where we are today, we're actually seeing more and more companies entering bankruptcy with less liquidity than previous years. And thus, the Chapter 11 processes are happening more quickly. We're also seeing many deals that are either teed up with a stocking horse or buyer that's in line of sight or have a prearranged and negotiated deal heading into bankruptcy. From a sector perspective, we'll continue to see increased activity in the retail sector from a restructuring perspective. The retail environment remains weak due to the continued slowdown of customer foot traffic from the effect of Amazon and other online retailers, a topic that was covered in one of your previous podcasts. And I don't see that trend you know, going away anytime soon. We think that companies will hopefully receive a Band-Aid from retail sales over the holiday season, but I think that's a short-term fix. And we also believe that long-term, there will be more fallout in the retail sector that in turn will impact the supply chain as well. Awesome. Appreciate the plug to a previous podcast. Nice, Happy nice to, to know do we it. have a, a guest and listener here with us. Uh, Adrian, let's, uh, let's, let's move the next uh, question to you. So at TZP Group, you frequently work with uh, due diligence and analysis of performance for owner and entrepreneur-led businesses. Uh, maybe you could tell us uh, more about your outlook, really, for valuation and multiples in the year ahead. Bring out that crystal ball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's an interesting question and one that we're constantly asking ourselves as we uh, as we uh, go through the market. And though, um, depending on what stats you're looking at, um, I think our view might be limited or, or, or specific to the opportunities that we look at. So it may seem counterintuitive, but the multiples in, in our verticals and in our space have been quite high uh, in the last year to, to 18 months. Given the landscape going forward, there's a lot of uncertainty when you look at uh, the political environment and the regulatory environment, uh, as well as capital allocation and performance. Um, but our expectation and hope is that in, in the year to come, uh, valuations can sort of normalize in our in our industries and and be uh, a little less um, optimistic. Yeah, appreciate that insight. Uh, maybe we'll throw out the uh, the next topic to both of you first, Matt. Uh, there's mounting evidence that we're heading for a market uh, correction. Do you believe that's the case? And if so, what consumer staples and essential services will do well in a downturn? Matt? Yeah, I would say uh, with respect to a market downturn. I want to caveat that I'm not an economist, so my comments should be taken with that in mind. Um, But what I can say is that in the credit markets, we're definitely seeing increased leverage levels over the past few years. We're seeing loosening of financial covenants. And combined with ultimately rising rates, the next default cycle per experts is expected to occur in late 2019 or as early as 2020 when low maturities start to climb. So furthermore, we're also seeing default rates picking up um, as the default rate increased to 1.9% in the past month from 1.5% one year prior. In fact, Edward Altman, the founder of the Z-Score, a method of predicting bankruptcies, also indicated recently that his data shows that there are similar levels today 
that there were in 2007 for average high, the average high yield issuer. So pretty interesting stuff there. Um, and then as Adrian pointed out, you know, our domestic political influences as well as regulatory as well as abroad are obviously key factors, but I won't kind of dig too deep into that just here. Um, most of the distress we've been seeing recently has been either company or industry specific, resulting from technological development, change in consumer preference or other micro factors. And I think this will continue to impact the economy. Um, as I mentioned before, retail with the shifting consumer preferences and then the, the auto sector being affected by some of the tariffs that have been recently implemented or technological disruptions. So ultimately, I think the short answer is that volatility from where I sit today shows so no signs of abating. And I think over the coming months, um, you know, volatility will, will continue to pick up. Um, and then just to not lose sight of your second question, I think that in general, consumer staples and essential services are typically safe havens during this period of market volatility. So I continue, I'll, I'll expect that trend to kind of continue. Hmm. Lots, lot, lots of good input there. Uh, Adrian, care to, care to weigh in on anything Matt didn't cover? Uh, sure. No, I'm glad to hear uh, Professor Altman <laughs> and I are on a similar page. I studied under him in NYU, at a NYU Stern. Um, I think, well, first of all, I mean, you know, not to take the obvious, but we're always headed for a correction. I mean, the question is around timing and magnitude. As private equity investors, uh, we're a little bit of a longer hold. So our focus is less on, uh, you know, you know, the correction itself as it is, you know, when is it going to happen and how should we be thinking about it in the context of our operations of our portfolio companies and, of course, uh, how we go into the market to, to acquire and exit. Fantastic. Appreciate uh, insight from both of you on that. Let's jump uh, to the next topic. Uh, data is uh, certainly signaling that uh, trade tensions are starting to bite into allocations and capital raising. I guess, Adrian, to you, uh, do you think the trade tensions and tariffs will continue to impact middle market deal flow over the next year or so? Um, I think our primary focus uh, is in North America. So the way I view this is, is as there are increasing trade tensions and tariffs uh, outside of, uh, especially outside of the U.S., depending on which geography you're talking about, um, allocations of capital could tend to lean toward North American funds. Uh, so we're optimistic in that context. If I'm, you know, if I'm an asset manager and I allocate X percent per year to, say, the UK, I might be reconsidering that number right now, given the uncertainty. And the same could apply to other geographies. Uh, so in that context, I think we stand to, to somewhat benefit, and the jury's out. Okay. Let's, uh, let's move to digital transformation. Um, According to actually, according to BDO's uh, digital transformation survey, more than one third of financial services companies are developing a digital transformation strategy. Uh, Adrian, I, l- let me ask you this one as well. What's your outlook when it comes to digitalizing PE funds and their port codes? Do you think the PE industry is uh, is is ahead of or behind the curve? Um, so I. Th- where you stand depends upon where you sit. Um, from my viewpoint, um, the lower middle market PE funds, I think, have been somewhat behind the curve uh, to a certain extent. But there's been increased demand for digitization, uh, and especially in and around reporting and compliance issues. Um, so that, that's one piece of the house. The other piece of the house on the PE side uh, would be data analytics when you think of digitization. And I don't know that we're behind the curve there. I think very much in front of the curve. 
I think uh, on the pork coast side, it's, it's really the same. It's a sink or swim proposition uh, in the context of being able to analyze your data uh, on the pork coast and performance and understand where you need to be in the future. Uh, there has to be a move in that direction. Appreciate that insight, Adrian. Uh, one aspect certainly of digital transformation in the PE industry is data-driven investment. Um, I guess two parts here, and you know, in, as we look to 2019, uh, do you expect to see the application of data science and algorithms to drive investments? That's the first part. And second, uh, the use of programs to figure out how, how companies will perform down the road. Um, for this one, let's go to, uh, let's, I, I'd, I'd like to get both of your input, so maybe Adrian first, and then we'll have Matt chime in with his thoughts. Sure. As I may have alluded to in the first part of the question, uh, the data science and algorithm element of investing is certainly on the uptick. Um, and prior to joining TZP, uh, when I was more on the consulting side, I would see more and more of our clients um, require a certain amount of um, data science, uh, even to look at opportunities. Um, so when we approach the market currently, we are always thinking about uh, how we can use data science and how we can use uh, technology to prove management ass assertions and assumptions and then also give us other insights that may not be obvious by looking at the, the historical sort of uh, due diligence QV type packages. And we could elaborate that on, on that, I'm sure, if, if you'd be interested. Yeah, sure. No, happy to. So I think similar to, you know, the trend we're seeing in professional sports right now where mo many teams are using data analytics to make decisions such as where to shift their players for a certain batter or the money ball effect of what type of player to invest in. Right. I agree with Adrian that I, I think, you know, it'll be a trend that we'll see over the next year, maybe a few years. Um, but actually haven't seen, you know, from my perspective, a ton of funds doing it yet. Uh, what I would say is that these data science and algorithms would drive investments by highlighting metrics that actually impact a company's value. So it'll kind of separate the trends from noise in the data and help the PE firm address them quickly in order to maximize profitability. But I think ultimately this will just be another uh, data point to develop a valuation and won't be fully relied upon, similar to how there are multiple methods to value a company. Um, also with management fees under pressure, stakeholders want more transparency. So I think they'll need to benchmark and generate some sort of trend analysis and use this data to, to do so. Good stuff, good stuff. And now we'd like to take a quick coffee break with BDO's Allison Torres and Eric Farr, who are partners in the Transaction Advisory Services Practice in the Atlantic region. Allison and Eric will share their expertise and insights. Hi, everyone. This is Allison Torres. I'm here with Eric Farr, and we're very happy to have a few minutes to share our insights with you today. So let's get right to it. From a valuation and market landscape perspective, what we in BDO's transaction advisory services practice have seen has been dead on with what Adrian mentioned. Multiples have been high for desirable assets, and many of our clients as buyers have begun to express concerns over overpaying. That being noted, at this point, they are still buying. Looking forward, however, I think everyone agrees that some level of correction is on the horizon. But whether that happens in 2019 or 2020, and how meaningful it is, is the answer everyone's looking for. I'm actually fairly optimistic with the outlook for M&A transactions in 2019. 
Even with the House flipping in the midterm elections, many of the tailwinds behind M&A and the economy overall are expected to continue. For example, although further tax cuts aren't likely, neither is the change to those that were already implemented. So I'd expect a continued favorable impact to consumer spending. And deregulation is expected to continue as well as infrastructure spending, given bipartisan support. Offsetting some of these tailwinds is the continuation of rate increases from the Federal Reserve. However, although this will impact M&A to a certain extent, I don't think nominal increases in rates will have a noticeable impact on transaction volumes, at least not in 2019. What tends to impact M&A activity the most is uncertainty, and there is some uncertainty in the markets at the moment, especially internationally. For example, Brexit with the UK exiting the European Union is set to occur in March of 19. Although this could get pushed out, it appears imminent, and what happens in the European economy in a union that excludes the UK is a bit of a mystery still. Another area affecting international markets is ongoing trade wars and tariffs, which are causing some turbulence with cross-border deals. Allison, overall, though, I'm expecting continued strong M&A activity into 2019. Great points. So I know Adrian and Matt are going to talk about the role family offices have been taking in M&A. I will say the biggest changes we've seen in our practice is that these family offices have brought additional resources in-house, which has allowed them to invest directly rather than just being private equity LPs. Over the past five years, our practice has been engaged by family offices on a number of engagements to perform due diligence and tax structuring services for potential direct investments. I agree that family offices are another example of more capital chasing deals driving valuations higher. One other key difference in most family offices relates to holding periods. Although the family offices are acting more like private equity, they don't have the same constraints over holding period, especially with lower and mid-market M&A transactions. Family-owned businesses sometimes value a longer holding period, giving family offices a competitive advantage over traditional PE. Well, Eric, it looks like despite some concerns, things look good going into 2019. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Allison and Eric. And now back to our conversation with Adrian and Matt. Let's move to specialization. Um, I guess we'll go to to Adrian on this one. Uh, So we're hearing a lot about how specialization is key, with increasingly more funds differentiating themselves with niche industry focus. With greater competition and firms jostling with LP commitments, uh, do you see that trend continuing? in uh, 2019, Adrian? Um, I do, uh, somewhat sadly, as I can refer to myself as a generalist. <laughs> uh, but the, the reality is when we sort of look back and get feedback from uh, the market, uh, it, there's a certain amount of efficiencies to be gained by specialization. I mean, a team that has been there and done that will be able to ramp up faster and get to the answer faster uh, in, in, in a process. And, and then I think post-close, we'll also be able to effectively manage the operations just with a little more finesse and skill uh, without needing to leverage outside help, i.e. outside additional expenses. So I think specialization is key going forward. Um, that said, we still need to remain opportunistic to the extent that, that makes sense. As Matt points out uh, in, in his answer related to data-driven investments, these will not always be the sole 
deciding factor, right? There are other elements that will take precedence, such as, you know, relationship and fit and et cetera. Thanks. Uh, Matt, care to share any uh, additional thoughts on the topic? Yeah, sure. No, I totally agree. As we've hit a few times now, (laughs) we're in such a competitive market right now. So I think in order to not only gain LP commitments and ultimately source deals, um, specialization is key. I was actually talking to one of my colleagues from our financial sponsors group the other day, and he noted that many firms are focusing on niche strategies in order to put capital to work, which obviously is difficult in such a competitive market. Um, and those who say they're knowledgeable in the space may not have as much success deploying that capital as someone who's a true expert in that space. So I think that's important. And then, you know, generally for the deals that we're marketing, I've come across uh, large PE firms that have been expanding their businesses to include niche strategies and also firms that are solely focused on niche sectors as well. Some PE funds have also spun off private debt arms as well to continue to diversify. Yeah, and just yeah. to add to that a little bit, one of the things that we've tried to do as we think about specialization, we'll still address five to six verticals in the market. Yeah. And we'll just have our teams or almost silos in specific verticals. Exactly. Right. So it's not to say that a fund has to be obviously specialized, right? right? So much as can we bring a team to the table who has that deep knowledge that you're referring to and can we get up to speed quickly? Yeah, totally agree. I've seen that. Yep. Nice. All right. Well, certainly a lot of chatter in the industry about family offices. So maybe we can uh, uh, have have a question uh, on that topic. Um, you know, I would say the appetite of family offices for private equity has certainly led to uh, more investment competition. You guys can tell me if I'm wrong. And the figure of average family office portfolio investment in private equity is expected to climb in 2019. Uh, I guess, Matt, why don't we go to you first and then Adrian. Uh, Do you work with a lot of family offices and have you seen their market cloud expand? Yeah, Todd, we actually do spend a lot of time with family offices. Uh, What I would say is that family offices manage more capital, are more sophisticated and have greater expertise in-house than prior to the financial crisis, where historically they were paying money for external management advice. Um, And they've certainly evolved into this role just by way of background. In 2008, globally, there were 1,000 family offices, and today there are about 10,000. So major expansion there. Um, What I would also say is that many family offices are able to aggregate funds that may just not be their own family money, but it may be a handful of family offices with like-minded investment principles and coming together to invest in deals as well. We also continue to see there's a significant amount that continues to be invested in private equity and debt transactions as well via family offices, as these family offices are a nice alternative to some of the institutional money out there. Um, And then finally, PE firms like TZP are becoming more and more familiar with these family offices. So I've seen that they're willing to co-invest in deals as well. So based on all this information, we continue to see that family offices are active and meaningful participants in our processes. And I think they'll continue to be as well going forward. Yeah. Good insight. Adrian, what are you seeing? Certainly uh, seen an uptick in the activity, as Matt alludes to, of family offices. They're much more um, prevalent in the market as direct investors and PE style investments, but certainly as you allude to, willing to you know partner up with family offices and and and, and make deals that make sense, I think that there is a growing appetite um, uh, for targets to entertain that possibility. Um, the only sort of downside or risk that I can see at this point is is whether or not the family office has the sophistication and the the, the rolodex, if you will, to be able to bring more than the investment dollars. 
Right? And that's, some, uh, that's where I think partnering with a private equity uh, fund like TZP could add a lot of value in those types of transactions. Great. Well, guys, see, we've, uh, we've come to uh, the end of another podcast. Hopefully it wasn't uh, too painful for you. So Adrian Whipple with uh, TZP Group and Matt Bernstein with Raymond James, thanks so much for joining us today. I know our listeners will uh, in- enjoy all the insight you shared. You're both uh, very good friends of, of BDO, and we appreciate the relationship with your uh, firms. Uh, to our listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review of the show on iTunes. Until next time, have a great day. The views presented by our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of their respective firms. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Perspectives podcast. For more information on how BDO supports private equity sponsors, funds, and their portfolio companies with a full spectrum of accounting, tax, and advisory services, please visit us at BDO.com. If you enjoyed the show, we hope you visit iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Join us next time for another edition of Private Equity Perspectives. Perspectives.